The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Katie Anderson, a leadership coach, consultant, and author who's best known for inspiring individuals and organizations to lead with intention. Now, Katie's background is very diverse. She started off in research, public health, and then found her way to Japan in 2015, when an opportunity arised for her to move and live and work there. As part of that process, she actually got to meet Mr. Yoshido, a 40-year veteran of Toyota, and the designer of the NUMI training program, which was actually taken by John Shook, the first American to be hired as a manager within Toyota. Through those conversations with Mr. Yoshido, Katie has captured the lessons learned about how to deepen our knowledge on leadership, the Toyota way and Japanese culture. She shared those lessons back to help others deepen their problem-solving capabilities and create better patterns for behavior. On this show, we dive deep into her lessons learned, both from her own experiences and those shared by Mr. Yoshido. It's fascinating conversations about methods that I think can be really powerful to help you create high performance cultures and succeed. The key point that sort of connects to my whole thread of where I am today is around learning and connecting with people and helping other people learn as well. And that's part of the passion that's really driven me throughout my career. But I also had a bit of wanderlust and a desire to live overseas. And in both high school and university, I studied overseas. And then I made a choice to go not only live in the UK after college, but move to Australia to pursue my master's, which at the time was in public health policy. That's when I was still enriched in, in academia. And when I moved to back to the United States after four years in Australia, pursuing a few different paths. And actually, it was at that point that I sort of veered away from academia. I came back to the San Francisco Bay Area, which was my home base, and took a job at the Stanford Children's Hospital, which at that time was Seal Packard Children's Hospital. And that was the entry point for me into what was really a life-changing or pivotal career moment where I moved into process improvement and which then became really a passion around leadership development because I also had my own sort of transformation of being an expert to a coach of other people. And through some career growth over that time for six years at Packard Children's Hospital and then another large healthcare system, I started my own consulting practice. And then we had this incredible opportunity, not for my job actually, but for my husband's job to move to Japan. And as a process improvement practitioner who had been applying Toyota production system principles in these large healthcare systems. I was really thrilled by the opportunity to go learn about what we now call lean at the source. And it really connected with that, that international side of me as well. I'd been back in the United States for about eight years at that time. And so off we went to Tokyo with our almost one-year-old and our four-year-old with us and embarked on this incredible adventure that has really dramatically altered the course of both my career and professional trajectory, including meeting 
a man named Asao Yoshino, who I have just written a leadership book. It's sort of part memoir, part leadership book, part history. He worked at Toyota for 40 years. And now I lead study trips to Japan to help leaders from outside of Japan really understand Japanese culture and the Toyota Way principles. And I couldn't have imagined where this would have all come together. But now I see it's like this incredible synergy of my love for multiple cultures, my love for learning, and really my love for people development as well. Yeah, and that's a pretty nice convergence of lots of things to find, you know, like a sweet spot for yourself in some respects, right? And even listening to your story, it doesn't sound like it was obviously a direct line there in any way, right? Like you sort of worked your way into that. And so what have been some of the reflections for you then even along the way? Like what were the signals that helped you sort of recognize that you wanted to go in certain directions or curiosity sounds like one aspect of it, but you wanted to make transitions even from, you know, leading teams to coaching other people how to lead teams. What were some of those inflection points for you? Yes. Well, for the first, the big pivot for me was moving for away from this, what I thought was my career path towards academia and research. And it was over a few years, really, that that transition happened for me. And I realized that, well, I love learning and research and the sort of the intellectual side of it. I also am an extrovert and I get energy from really connecting with people. And I found that the type of research that I was doing, while important and interesting, was very retrospective. And I didn't feel like there was something tangible I could see or a tangible outcome that I was impacting. And so I moved into healthcare consulting and from that process improvement work. Through that, I had a real pivot too, because I had been trained as being, you know, an expert, you know, researcher, an expert problem solver. I mean, we were hired in at the hospital to be great problem solvers and sort of assigned to different parts of the hospital to kind of go out and help put some brain power to the problems that the organization was solving or trying to solve or fix which is really exciting. I love diving into the complexity of systems and I like the sense of helping people solve problems. Probably my biggest unlearning that had to happen was that now that when I was in a role to help other people solve problems, not problems that I was responsible for figuring out, I really needed to shift my mindset and also shift my approach from being the one who's going in and doing it all to really going in and helping other people by asking more questions, teaching, modeling the way, and being more their guide through that problem-solving process. And that really required me to show up in a very different capacity. And then as I continued to then be responsible for managing teams of people as well, how was I developing my people to be more capable? I couldn't just tell them what to do, but how do I create those experiences? Yeah, it's a really interesting inflection point for a lot of people, right? From when you go to, from being an individual contributor to being like a leader of contributors. And I think so many people get trapped thinking this competencies that made them successful as a contributor will make them successful as a, you know, a leader or a guide of other leaders. And I think it's really hard to make that transition as well, because so much of your identity is often tied to your competency in the initial role, right? Like if you started as an engineer and you're an awesome engineer and now you're managing engineers, when you're under stress and pressure as well, the easy thing to do is to sort of jump in and try and fix things or people are doing things wrong or not how you would do them. And you've had these like, like really interesting experiences about 
both your own learnings and then having a chance to study and work with one of the people within Toyota who, who's there for 40 years, like they really built the culture. As you look back on those things, what do you feel like were some of the things that you both recognize or intuitively fell into and even now reflecting on it as you're thinking and helping other people? What are some of the other layers that you start to add on to that? You know, as you keep progressing and learning more stuff over time. That's a big question because there's so much rich learning to pack in there. For me, one of the most helpful things has been this concept of what I call leading with intention or living with intention. In fact, when I had moved to Japan, I didn't have business cards at the time. And as you know, as someone who travels a lot to Asia, you, you hand out a lot of business cards, particularly in Japan. It's the part of the ritual. And so the word intention had been very meaningful to me for a while. But I just said, put the Japanese word for intention on my business card. And so they did. And I started handing it out and discovered through Japanese people telling me that the symbols that make up the word intention come in part from heart and direction. And it really struck me as quite profound in this richer meaning of the word intention that if we can connect with our heart, what's most important to us in that moment on the big level, almost you could maybe say our purpose, and then what direction do we need to orient our actions and that behavior or our behavior in that direction to achieve that purpose, then we can really be living and leading with intention. And so how we can sort of create that self-awareness for ourselves, what's our role in the moment, even though we may have the desire to be helpful, as you said, when we are leading teams of people or in a coaching role, how we can be helpful as an expert versus a leader of people is very different in the behaviors that we need to take to align in that direction of achieving that helpfulness is really different. And so for me, it's about really just coming to understand, and I've talked to the Mr. Yoshino about this too, what's your purpose in the moment? Is it to be more telling, to give the direction, to set the, set the targets and to be more explicit about this is where we need to go, or this is exactly what needs to happen? Or are you there to be really developing other people's capabilities or helping them think through a problem they have ownership for? And those are two different behaviors and it can help us stay very grounded in sort of what is more effective in that moment. Because we do need to own our expertise and our experiences. It's not like we should get rid of that when we become a leader or in a a role called coach. But how do we put our expertise to the side when in that moment we're there to help someone in a different way. We're almost there to become as the expert helpers, not the expert content knowledge folks. Yes, it's a really, really interesting point to me. It reminds me of a conversation I had with Christian Melser's CIO at Volkswagen. And when he was starting the role, he had this very interesting sort of similar parts that resonate here. It's like one part of the role is recognizing how you're developing people and growing them and encouraging them. But at some point, you also do have to give direction. People look to you as a leader to make these choices. And if you spend all your time just asking people, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Or how would you do that? It sort of decredits some of the, well, why are you leading if you're all... So he ha- it was really interesting to hear him just, you know, we've all been these points is how do you strike that balance where, I mean, I love this notion of breaking down intention and its true meaning of another great manifestation of Japanese culture about why words actually have such deep meaning behind them when you deconstruct them. How do you find that sort of, that balance where, yes, you're being empathetic, taking information in, encouraging, 
but also then at those moments where you do need to actually be explicit about the direction, maybe not not how people get there, but certainly what success might be. What, what are some of the things you've sort of learned along the way there? That's another great question and, and one that I see a lot. So when leaders have this epiphany that, oh my gosh, I've been so super directive and that's not aligning with my purpose of the part of my role, which is developing people, they almost over pivot to the other side and become much more always asking and trying to only ask open-ended questions, but then they're not doing the other part of their role, which is setting direction. And that's actually something I, I learned from Mr. Yoshino the very first time I met him. He was on stage talking about his role as a manager at Toyota. And he said something so profound to me in this one simple statement, and he didn't even remember saying this. I asked him a year later when we started to become friends, and he said his role as a manager was to develop the person working for him, but first by setting the target and issuing a challenge and then providing the support and development of that person while he or she went to forth and was trying to achieve that challenge. And as he was developing the person reporting to him, he was aware he was developing himself as well. And to me, that sums up like the simple but challenging thing about leadership, which your role as a leader is to set the direction, to provide the support, and to develop yourself. So in terms of how do you balance that? Because you do. People need alignment. They need to know what the target is, what is the direction of the organization. I would say to step back and even say, do you have clarity as the leader on where your organization or your company needs to go. And if you don't have clarity on that, it's unlikely that your people do. And then also even you can check in and ask them, you know, what is your understanding of what our target is? How does that align to the work that you're doing? And how can I support you? And you can provide input, of course. Leaders do need to get input from their team to understand what's happening. But really, the job of the leader is to be looking further out and understanding where do we need to be steering the ship towards, and then how do they enable the people who are working with them to actually do that. It's interesting. You, you're reminding me now of another story from a lady called Patty McCorry. She was the chief HR officer for Netflix, and she had this hallway test where she would sort of go down the hallway and she would just stop people and ask them, you know, what's your current focus? And see how they would respond. And some people would be like, reason like, um, uh, well, I'm building a mobile app. And what you'd be actually looking for is people to actually say, what is the direction the company is trying to go for? So like we're, we're trying to reduce retention by 25%. And how I'm contributing to that is actually I'm building this sort of application that's going to increase the uptime for users to watch shows. So she could get a sense of how well people understood the direction. And what they would say is if people didn't know the direction that had been set by leaders, it wasn't necessarily a fail on the individual. It was actually a fail on the leadership team because they weren't communicating the direction well. You know, so what you're describing here is really resonant with that because it's a problem like so many companies have is people don't know the direction or leaders aren't give good clarity for what it is. And people are trying to do their best, but without a vision, it just creates activity, but not in a meaningful direction. So it's kind of interesting to hear you share these sorts of patterns that people can see, even in their own company, they can ask themselves that question right now, like, am I clear on what's the target I'm trying to achieve? Do I feel supported in getting there? 
do I feel like my manager is growing as a result of trying to help me get there? Like they were all great mm. questions to spot cultural cues in companies to see, you know, if they are performant in some respects. Absolutely. When I go in and coach or consult with organizations or individuals on problem solving, the very first thing we start talking about is, you know, the very simple, at the very basic level, the problem equation, which is target minus actual is the gap or the problem. And people focus a lot on, okay, let, how do we understand the current condition? Let's go see, let's collect data, let's collect facts, let's really understand the rich current condition. But when you say, well, what's the target or what's the challenge? What's the direction you're moving towards? More often than not, they get stumped and stuck because I think we've, leaders in general have forgotten to really communicate clearly what is the target? What is the goal? And so we can't expect people to be really solving problems in our organization if they don't know what is the gap they're really trying to close. What are some of your helping leverage points there then when you're when you're working with teams or you know some anecdotes you've had from companies you've been working with about helping them sort of recognize that and in, in it may have just been a blind spot for them before. Absolutely, and you know I think it's also partly we all feel so busy and there's so much going on. And, and some of that's because we have a lack of clarity of what are the most essential things to do. I remember back to when I was working at another large healthcare organization, the leaders were trying to unlearn and relearn a new way of thinking about strategy, how to even set and communicate direction to the people in the organization. And this is the work of senior leadership in the organization is to set that direction and of course enable and support people. But we spent a lot of time working at that executive level of saying, what are the top priorities of the organization? Where do we need to go? We assigned each of the senior executive, most executive team to own a specific part of the company and to do a deep dive analysis by working with other people to understand and articulate what was most important in that, like around quality or safety or customer satisfaction, and then come together to say, okay, how much bandwidth do we have to even put towards all of this? And what are all the initiatives going on in the organization? Actually, it was so eye-opening. I remember vividly, we were in this huge conference room and we asked all of like the next level down, all the directors in the organization to come forward with all of the things that they were working on because the priorities that they had either assumed or been told or had just come up with in their own silo. And it was clear, well, this is why we're, we're not achieving anything because it's impossible to get everything done. And so making that work visible was really a helpful enabler and also assigning thought leadership to specific executives to really own the deeper thinking around certain aspects of the business and having them go out and do the talking across the organization were real enablers for sort of over that next year for the organization to start getting more clarity. You know, of course, strategic cycles are much longer, but through that process, we're getting, it just started to make it all much clearer of what the direction of the organization needed to be and really what the top priorities and energy had to be focused on. One of the things I'd love to hear you sort of elaborate on for sure is this notion, especially grounded in, I think one of the real mystiques of Toyota production system is uh, their strategic deployment method or Hoshin process in terms of their words. You, you want to share a little bit about like your experiences, both like living that inside 
a Toyota with like one of the people who helped shape that and then bringing that to companies, you know, outside of Japan, where I think many people feel like, oh, yeah, I know how to do strategy. It's, you know, we'll just pick what we're going to do and what we're not and off we go. But I think there's a sort of much more interesting approach to that. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on maybe some of the key differences and the aha moments you sort of had along the way from really immersing yourself in that approach? Sure. Well, first I'll start off telling a little bit of what I've learned from Asao Yoshino. And I document this in the book, Learning to Lead, Leading to Learn, and how Toyota really saw what they call Hoshin Kanri, which is translated as strategy or policy deployment in English, how they really used that as a countermeasure to all of the things that we often experience not clarity on priorities, not communicating that, how to break down silos and have real cross-functional management. And so they brought in this concept of Hoshin deployment in the 1960s. And in the late 1970s, the senior most leadership of Toyota realized that sort of the management capabilities that went alongside of that, so not just using the tools, but actually how were leaders engaging with their people and having conversations sort of vertically and horizontally across the organization, wasn't happening very effectively. And Mr. Yoshino was one of a handful of members of Toyota who were responsible for this unlearning and relearning program at Toyota for its 1,000 most senior managers and senior leaders in the organization. It was a two-year program of how to really effectively use Hoshin as a communication tool and process. So the tool supported the process, which was really around identifying the top most strategies of the organization and how does the next level down contribute to achieving those strategies? And then how does the next level down do that? But most importantly, it was through the conversations that happen between sort of layers within the organization and across and how were they getting on the same page literally using an A3 size piece of paper as their communication tool to summarize the key points and to make sure those connections were happening. And really what I see the difference of Hoshin Conry as it compares to sort of traditional strategy and strategy deployment is that it's really anchored in this concept of the scientific method of plan, do, study, adjust. So really, not just plan, do, plan, do, but a real deep process of reflection and studying what happened last year, what worked well, what didn't, did we achieve our goals? If not, why not and how not? Not just looking at the outcomes, but really understanding the process and then creating a revised plan for the next year and having that conversation at all levels of the organization. So this combination of deep reflection and understanding of the process, as well as the method of communication. So it's not just top-down command and control, like this is the target we're going to achieve, go forth, but really that connected understanding of how are you going to contribute and you and your, your team going to contribute to achieving that goal. And actually through this program that Mr. Yoshino was part of, one of the things that they had the senior managers do was not just focus on the operational outcomes that the leaders need to achieve, but they also had to identify for their top priority item, how are they as the leader going to support their team to achieve that? So getting back into 
your role as a manager is to set the target and provide support and really reinforcing that. So to me, that's a real key difference than how we often think about strategy at Western organizations. Right. And maybe there's even people here listening, you know, they're going, well, hang on, like if the leader set the target and then there's a conversation that happens at mul- multiple levels and that just sounds like, you know, leaders have set the direction and I've got to do my weekly report and fill out my report and go and meet my manager and tell them everything's going great. And well, I think there's some real, like very, very powerful nuances here that I think are worth highlighting. First of all, this idea of the quality of information flowing up and down the company, you know, this very much bi-directional conversation between where leaders aspirationally want to go with, with a target and then team sharing the reality of like the real data about what was achieved. And we might say that happens in a lot of companies, but it doesn't, right? I like the information, people are afraid to share the truth. They're afraid to be shouted at or nobody wants to share bad news. And yet, to this point, you mentioned about training managers to have those sort of difficult conversations that makes it safe for people to volunteer the correct information. So better quality of information is flowing through the company, better decisions are being made, there's greater alignment. And that's a real, like, I find massive skill, like missing in so many companies. And I think what strikes me is truly unique, especially in this context you're describing, is that that's not the case there, that managers are actively taught how to encourage and get the true information from employees. So even if it's bad news, it's actually a good thing because it's the real data. Therefore, we can actually take action based on the truth, not a version of the truth that's sort of right, but not perfectly right. And then you've got leaders making potentially good decisions, but on bad data, and then that just leads to more bad results. So can you share a little bit more, especially about this, like how how Toyota are helping these leaders nurture that conversation? Mm. Because I think some of the magic is these, as you said, the personal interaction moments where the contributor feels safe to say, yeah, that experiment we did, actually it didn't work. It was a disaster. And mm. isn't that awesome? So what are we going to do next? You know, like, I think it's something that you know, I know you've experienced and seen how, how those programs are designed. Mm. So I'd love to, you'd hear you to elaborate a little bit on some of your experiences there. You know, one of the things that strikes me is that Mr. Yoshino always talks about how the concept at Toyota that no problem is a problem and bad news first. And these are not just things they say, but really, really follow through with as well. As you were talking about, they, they've really in many ways, strongly created this no-blame culture. And there are so many stories that he shares and elaborate on in the book from the time he joined Toyota as a young college graduate in the 1960s when he made this really sort of bad mistake of pouring different a solvent and paint in a can. He was actually having to work in, in, on the shop floor to understand the true value creation work, even though he was a back office business manager type of role. And a hundred paint cars were coming off the line that needed to be repainted because the paint wasn't sticking. And instead of yelling at him, instead of blaming him for making a mistake, when the managers saw what he had done, they thanked him for making the mistake because it was their responsibility. They saw it to create conditions at work that allowed people to be successful. And that was sort of his entry point in the Toyota. And then I fast forward 40 years 
to he's a vice president at Toyota leading a new $13 million venture. Many people wouldn't have known about Toyota's water ski boat business venture because it was a failed one. And Mr. Yoshino was in charge of it. And the senior most leaders were even walking the walk around that. It missed, there was one time Mr. Yoshino talks about how he knew that the business was failing. And this was about a, a, probably a year before everything <laughs> totally went down the tubes. But he, it was a very complex story. And I get into it in the book. But he had an opportunity to speak to Mr. Fujio Cho, who was then the president of Toyota. And there were all these other managers around the table talking about how great their business was going. And he basically, what I call pulled the and on, which is that cord on the shop floor line when something's going wrong. And he signaled, he said, Mr. Cho, I can't explain it all right now, but things are not going well in the water ski boat business. Would you be able to come out and visit? And instead of brushing him off or getting mad or, or anything, Mr. Cho said yes. And he made a point of coming out to visit this sort of what Mr. Yoshino considers a very small part of, of Toyota. It wasn't part of the cure business. And he came out to see what was happening, to understand the process and offer his support. And even though he did provide support and was able to help sort of help patch through the business for a few more months, it ultimately was the business did get shut down. But in the same way, it was okay to say we are failing in this major new business venture. Mr. Yoshino was not fired. And in fact, a year or so later, Mr. Cho said, you did a great job. You were doing the best you could. You were new to the boat business. We were new to the boat business. And there are things that we all did that contributed to the boat business failure. And to me, that's really strikes as quite profound, that true, like no blame, not singling one person out for making a mistake or not doing things as well as they could have, but have really encouraged that the giving it a go and knowing that if we're going to be trying out new ideas, that there is going to be some failure along the way and accepting that and thinking about how can we actually be supporting people through that process and not just celebrate the successes, which of course are great, but also celebrate and reflect on the failures as a source for learning. You know, I think for me, like they're like the real notes of difference, I think, about the behaviors and the mindset that those companies are building. The paint example is just spot on for me. Not to blame the worker, it's like, how did we create the conditions for the worker to make that mistake? And it's not the individual, it's not like you, you made the mistake. It's like this collective notion of how did this happen? Not who did this, it's how did this happen? And how can we fix the way we work so that's not going to happen again to, to anyone, not just that person who had it current. I think that's such a different point of view from so many individualistic sort of workplaces where people are striving to show how great they are or everyone wants to claim the reward for themselves. Look how awesome I'm working hard here or, or if things go wrong very quickly to, to focus on it was your fault, Barry, you know, you, you made the mistake or you thought you could make that business work. And I think there one like leads to negativity, suppression of information, politicizing versus I think this notion of like bringing problems out into the light and recognizing that the real challenges are what they are and having honest, open conversations about them so we can make progress in these difficult circumstances. And 
you know, invariably the best companies I see or work with or have an opportunity to spend time with at all are always focused on how we make this better, not whose fault it was. And that's a huge point for people to really think about in your company is when failures occur or how information moves around, what's the quality of the information and why is that? And otherwise, if you don't have good information, you can't make good decisions. And I think that's another magic of the whole systems that they build. For sure. And I think, you know, to bring it back into sort of present day or not, you know, in the last decade, again, working with these leadership teams about how do we create those systems? You know, how do you then get people on that path when you're with these companies and you're trying to like, you know, people talk about changing the way people work to change the way they behave, to change their mindset. So what are some of the steps that you think you've tried and where you've seen things that have gone well or not so well that you would do differently? The very first, I think part of it is creating some very basic standards for understanding what should be happening and a process of reflection and creating some visibility around that and also creating time and a system for leaders to be knowing how they go out and check on the work and how do they go in and start practicing asking those questions about, you know, the example you provided earlier, what are you working on? What is the target? And how are you problem solving across that and creating some visibility to what's the expectation? How are you thinking about the current situation? And then how are you problem solving and and developing that pattern and that habit, even on a very simple scale, and then starting to grow that. I have found has been really tremendously impactful across many different organizations, be they sort of smaller ones or even larger systems. And the more we can make work visible and also setting expectations for a leader's role to check, but not just checking on the outcomes, but checking on the process and how people are thinking and problem solving and really hearing what's going on in the actual work. Yeah, nice, nice. So looking forward then, some of the things that you're sort of excited about with this work and where you're hoping to go with it and what are the things that you're sort of excited about as you look ahead? It's really fun to be able to now not be working in the book, but really talking about it and really seeing and hearing the reflections people are having and how they're having an opportunity to learn from these stories and experiences and the the reflection questions I included in every section because I really wanted this book to be not just a book of like telling leadership principles or going back to this telling versus asking, but sharing and showing some stories and then allowing people to reflect and learn for them for themselves about how am I actually doing this in my organization? What are some things I learned from the story, both for what I want to do, but maybe what I shouldn't be doing? So I'm really excited to now just continuing to be amplifying the messages around that. I look forward to the time when uh, we can travel more freely again. It's one of the really exciting sort of the trifecta of my passions around international cultures, learning and people has been the Japan study trips I've been leading for the last few years. And I had two sold out trips this year, which of course didn't get to happen. And this is now the longest time it's been nine months that I haven't been in Japan since we moved there in 2015 for 18 months. So I'm really uh, looking forward to being able to do those trips again. And I know they will in the future. 
I'm really excited about continuing to help individuals in particular to really connect with their intention and their purpose and then how more how they're aligning those their behaviors in the direction of achieving that because I think as individuals if we can work on ourselves and do that more effectively then within whatever organization we're all in we can help those organizations so that's really where my passion's been lying that's nice that certainly resonates a lot about thinking about our own personal intentions you don't have to be in work to practice that probably easier for me anyway to practice that at home and then bring those things to work so yeah i think that's an awesome thing for people to take away so yeah thank you very much for sort of sharing your experiences and it's a fantastic book i really recommend people check it out and it's been a pleasure to have you on the show so thank you very much thank you barry it's been a pleasure